Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society. This is the after show for Lenny by Lucas Hazlitt and Alex Hirschlag. As always, if you haven't listened to the table read, you should probably go do that right now. This was a really fun interview. We get into some very specific details of Lucas's background, like very specific details of his origins. Uh, We talk about how he moved from philosophy to improv comedy. It's the second month in a row where we talk to uh, a philosopher turned comedian. It's a trend. We talk about Alex's career origins, writing for Rob Schneider and Ellen DeGeneres before he moved on to Will and Grace and many, many other great comedies. Uh, And as you'll see, we get into how Lucas and Alex's real-life dynamic is very similar to the dynamic of Lenny and Al in the pilot. Lucas talks about the places where he wanted to take this show in series, and there are places that CBS would never have let him take it. All right, here is my conversation with Lucas Hazlitt and Alex Hirschlag. Hal Lublin here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment, professional wrestling. For more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Radford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. All right, Lucas and Alex. Hello. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Hello. Hi. Hey, Alex. Um, all right, Alex, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to you in a moment. I'm going to start with Lucas oh, because goodness. this, you know, the project did kind of start with Lucas, as we heard a little bit about in your quick intro before the read. But um, where are you from? How did you happen? Let's go. What's tell me your story. How did I happen? Well, (laughs) a a formerly homeless black man uh, conned his way into the heart of of a a young white woman who was Jewish in Sacramento, California. And uh, in 1983, well, I guess technically, yeah, no, in in the in during the Super Bowl. When the Redskins beat the, um, was it the Dolphins? Whoever they beat, they must have fucked. And then nine months later, <laughs> I came out. Wow, this is great. I wasn't, I was not expecting actual conception story, but this is great. We rarely, I rarely get. That. I mean, it's a, it's essential to who I am is to focus as much as possible on father issues. That is, which you know <laughs> applies to the show that you know we will talk about. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so Sacramento. Sacramento, so California is the short answer of where I'm from, yes. And you grew up there? I grew up in Sacramento, um, and then when I graduated high school, I hightailed it to New York. I was like, I got to get the fuck out of this city. And luckily, my mom's side of the family is from New York, so every summer we would go there anyway. So I just was like, this is where I'm going to go when I can fly the coop, and that's what I did. I went to New York City after that. With dreams of what? Um, honestly, with dreams of uh, not anything comedic, nothing. I wanted to be a philosophy professor. That's what I. That's what my dreams always was. Um, and so when I got to school, I went to St. John's University, which was my uh, second school. Let's just say that. Not where I wanted to go originally. <laughs> um, I bounced around from major to major, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And then I landed in in the philosophy department. I was like, holy shit, this is, you mean I just, my classes are literally read this and think, okay, that's what I do. Um, And and that's all I did is I wrote, I thought, I got in debates with people about what people were saying, all the ancient thoughts, new thoughts, modern thoughts, contemporary shit. And... I had no desire or no thought that I was going to even enter into comedy until, you know, three or four years after uh, school when I was working at a shitty job um, 
where it was it was now owned by Nielsen, where our job was literally we we showed up at night, we sat in front of televisions, and we logged all of the different products that we could find in that have been placed in the show. And oh Jesus! Ev- it was awful. And ev- <laughs> the the joke we always said is we're we're helping make the worst part of TV worse, which is commercials and, and products <laughs> and whatnot. Every single person that worked there was either an improviser or a stand-up comic. And so naturally I was like, oh my God, I'm you're all hilarious. And I would go see them do their shows. And I was like, I want to do this. And you know, sure enough, bada bing, bada boom, I fell into the UCB theater. I fell into the People's Improv Theater. And I was just like, oh, I'm a philosopher on a stage. That's all it is. It's the same shit. I was the same arguments and the same uh, process of like reducing things to a singular idea was exactly what was going on on stage. So I was just like, this is what I've always been meant to do. And I get rewarded with a laugh. Great. Love it. And that's that's how I fell into this shit, into comedy. And so I was like, once I, you know, started making making a little bit of a name for myself, these different <laughs> showcases would pop up. And one of the showcases that swooped me out to Los Angeles was the CBS Diversity Showcase. And through that, I was able to, you know, I got a script deal and th- that script deal turned into Lenny. Wow. That's an amazing story. You are the first philosopher turned comedian that we've had on. And I love that you really felt it just applied like what you were doing applied so much to comedy. I've just never heard that perspective. I mean, the entire concept of joke writing and joke telling and situations is being able to analyze a large set of data and try to pluck the one essential thing. And, you know, that's what scene work was in improv is like, what's the one funny idea that we're doing right now? And then how do you repeatedly hit that? And so that, that's what comic, the, the, that engine in my mind is what was appealing to comedy for me. And I guess I've always had that because I grew up loving Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, all those greats who did that anyway. But I just never knew that what they were doing was on what they were doing on stage was the very thing that I was learning how to do, you know, but we're talking about ethics and what's the nature of mind. It's like, okay, well, what's the nature of what's funny about, you know, drug use? There, find the essential nugget of truth in that and then go tell that on stage. And it's like, that's what all the greats do. And, you know, so I was just like, fuck, I want to do that. So there, yeah. Speaking of that, looking at your IMDb page, I noticed credits for both a crackhead Kenneth and a crackhead Kevin. Yes, and one, (laughs) no, this is very true. I have played uh, three crackheads, although one of them was technically a meth head. They didn't mention it on Two Broke Girls, but I technically was addicted to meth in that that show. So yeah, I've been playing homeless people and crackheads my entire life, and this was supposed to be the moment when I was like, oh, I get to just play a normal human being. And you know, CBS was like, no, no, we liked you better as a crackhead, so we're gonna bring you back for one more crack-related thing. What we should, you know, Alex, we should have written in that that's why, that's why what estranged him is he was addicted to crack. Maybe they would have wrapped their heads around me doing that. Why? Why is he so weird? What is wrong with Lenny? He's addicted to crack. <laughs> and then we would have added some sweetener. Of we would have people go, oh. <laughs> so when you got that, so that CBS diversity showcase that led to this pilot, had you already been do? Had you done wrecked? Had you done any of the like TV uh, spots? No and, you know, roles that you had been playing. The no. only TV that all came after. Yeah, the only on camera TV like actual real job that I had done was a very brief moment in um, Broad City, very brief. Like, I think I had one like line where I was like, I said the line at a party and then maybe I was in some background party shots. But it, I all the stuff that I booked in LA literally was because a casting director at uh, the showcase who's friend, was friends with the program literally was like bringing me in for shit. And I was like, oh great, this, you know, it was like my first year here and I was like, oh, this is how Hollywood works. You show up off the <laughs> fresh new face and you just get jobs and it's gonna be like that forever. And I was like, oh no, kiddo, it's not, <laughs> so. Okay, so you get the this, uh, this pilot 
Um, and how does that work? That, that you're just sort of made a blind, they make a blind deal with you. We want uh, an idea from you. So what happened if I'm trying to rack my brain because this was like six years, five, six years ago now. Um, originally, the whole point of the program is they want to put you on a holding deal as an actor. That's like their primary thing because they're like, oh, you, right. you, you're a great actor. We want to put you in one of our shows. I couldn't be on a holding deal because I had booked a, a, a Comedy Central pilot and I was uh, in that. And when that didn't go, they came back and were like, hey, you know, we heard that that show didn't go. We would love to, you know, offer you another holding opportunity. And I told my team, I was like, eh, I don't want to do that unless you sweeten the deal and give me like a script. Because that's what I would really love is to write my own show for me to be in. And shockingly, they were like, sure. And so they threw in a, a blind script deal. And again, someone that I was friends with at the time, no longer, totally do different podcast about that. But someone I was friends with at the time was really good friends with the producer who I brought, I met up with who already had a deal at CBS. And I thought to myself, well, if you already have a deal at CBS, I have a script deal at CBS. Let's work together on this and see if we can come up with a show. And the two, the two things I, I, I remember saying in our first meeting, um, I said, I, I was like, I either want to be a Willy Wonka-esque character, because that's one thing I did during my showcase, or I want to be a Kramer-esque character, but the show's about him. And so we kind of leaned more towards that, where the, we started flirting around with ideas, and we kind of landed on the idea that, oh, what if we followed a Kramer-esque type person, but he's not the side character, he's the main character. And so that's kind of the genesis kind of of where we started flirting with this idea. And how much writing had you done up until that point? Um, I never, I had not done any professionally. I had not done any, like, I had not written. I was never in a room. I had not written any official scripts that got sold. But I have been writing screenplays like most dreamers uh, since high school. Like, <laughs> I've been writing, you know, shitty scripts, you know, forever. Um, and my uncle, actually, uh, on my dad's side, used to write for In Living Color. So, I always knew, like, oh, there you people write these shows. So, and to know someone, you knew it was a job. You knew it was a job. So, like, right. from my childhood, I was like, oh, I'll write some funny shit. But I never showed anyone anything, um, and I never really wrote anything to be seen. I wrote just for the fun of it. And so, really, the only job I'd had where I was actually being given a check for writing comedy was a prank show on MTV where I was just dreaming up pranks for people. <laughs> um, do you know that show um, on, it's run for a bunch of uh, seasons now on TBST, True TV or one of those, uh, where they, the friends tell each other to go fuck yeah, with people. Uh, we, the show that I wrote for and was that, but in a completely different way. Basically comics would tell strangers, go do this fucked up funny thing. And I had to, I was one of the writers who wrote all the different fucked up funny things they would have to go do. Okay, so you're now, Alex Hirschlag is about to enter the picture. So we're going to back up and talk about Alex's story. And then we'll catch up to the moment where you two meet. I will say I never know how to do these joint. I never know how to do these joint interviews. <laughs> I will let the audience know that his story is so much better than mine, and one of the reasons why we were so fucking delighted to have him come on board. Let's just put it that way. That's my tee up for Alex. Well, well, well thank you, Lucas. But I, I think your story of your life is super interesting, and is also what kind of brought me into wanting to do this with you is to hear what your story was and, and who you are. So, um, okay. But Alex, okay. So on what date did your parents fuck to conceive you? Let's, uh, you know, I, I think about that because it's my birthday <laughs> is uh, July 31st. So I think it, I might be a Halloween conception because I think that's like my, my month. So <laughs> I'm guessing, uh, I, they came back from some party. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what spring that was happening then. Maybe, uh, Maybe there's basketball or something. Maybe the Knicks were playing. I don't know. But uh, we, didn't, we didn't really – we've never really talked about that. 
Okay. <laughs> I never talked right. about that one. Now it's well, you know, um, okay, let's, you've got, you have had such an amazing career, have written on so many fantastic shows. How did that all start for you? You know, it's, it's a little bit different than, than a lot of people's paths and that I had trouble motivating myself to write. And I, I sort of started as a, I did stand up for a little bit in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. And pretty much when I get off stage, I would hear, you're a good writer, you know, um, <laughs> and then, uh, then I sort of stopped doing it and did improv more because I sort of liked hanging out with people. Uh, and the thing with I- improv is when I was doing standup, it felt more sort of like a competition sort of thing. Even if people were supportive of each other, you're backstage, you're trying to sort of one up each other, whatever, whereas improv was very collaborative. Um, and so I guess uh, Lucas and I have that in common, is that improv background. Uh, but then um, Rob Schneider started doing stand-up up in the Bay, and he asked if I would write uh, for, or I, I usually say for comics that I don't write for them as much as write with them, uh, in that I talk to them, I'm with them. I mean, I do come up with things, but a lot of times it's just us talking for like two hours, and then I go back and I put and I record it and I put things sort of in order and I add things and I try to create a, a structure around it. And so through Rob, I'll try to make this as short as possible. I, I was writing stand-up com- comedy for him. I got into an AFI sketch comedy writing workshop. It used to be that every year a different network would sponsor uh, this sort of workshop at AFI. And this year was NBC and it was sketch comedy and you would go there for, for it was about a month and they, uh, I think George Schlatter was sort of running it at the time. And they would have all these different people from different sketch comedy shows, from Saturday Night Live to even your show of shows and Carol Burnett, et cetera. And, but every day we'd also write sketches and they would be performed. They'd have uh, some actors to do it. Uh, after that, half the people that were in that, including me, got to... Um, come back the following year and do a special that was on NBC, which was my first writing credit. And um, and that was Kevin Bright produced it. It was at the studios where they were doing um, uh, Dream On. I even think I met Greg Malins there without, like before he was Greg Malins. Okay, uh, just so people know, Kevin Bright is you know, one third of Bright, Kaufman, Crane, the executive producers of Friends, and Greg Malins mm-hmm. was someone I worked with for many years on Friends. Continue. Uh, and so um, that that was my first credit. Like it was on TV. They had they had good people in it. Woody Harrelson was in it. Um, Jesus. <laughs> Mercy was in it. Um, Brian Benben was in it from that. Michael McKean. You know, they had really good <laughs> good people that, that did the sketch comedy thing. And uh, and that gave me my first sort of writers guild credits. And then I came down to LA a little bit after that. Thing, um, Malik is a friend of mine. Had an apart, uh, had a place in Santa Monica, and he got a job in in Vancouver. And said, "You want to just hang, you know, look after my place while I'm gone." And uh, continued writing for for Rob. Uh, wrote for like radio comedy, which doesn't pay that much, believe it or not. <laughs> um, wrote some animation for like there's a Back to the Future animated thing, and then sort of. Uh, a big break came that from um, I became friends with Vance DeGeneres. In a, there was a uh, this writing building, this building that was where where writers got to pay just a little did, bit. To, you know, I had an uh, office in that. I had an office in that building. Are you talking about the one on Kaw- Hollywood and Kawanga? Yeah, that's right. I I was in that building for a while too. Uh, on the third floor with so Vance. It was like the anyway, floor it was called. Yeah, the, it was fourth the fourth floor. Yeah. Yeah. And so from that, I, uh, Vance, you know, knew that I was writing comedy for, uh, for Rob and, you know, I'd write stuff like if he was going to be on Tonight Show or Senior Hall, or if he was performing at a funk, like, um, like sometimes it'd be like Xerox or something like comedians would do things <laughs> like that. I would come up with, with things for them at a convention. And, uh, he introduced me then to, to his sister, Ellen DeGeneres. And to see, she was looking for people to write with and to do writing with. And um, I will speed through this, but uh, Ellen and I sort of really connected and um, I started writing a lot for her. Um, and 
um, helped her with her book. She wrote it, but I just really, really helped when she wrote a book. And then she uh, brought me onto her sitcom. And that's sort of how my sitcom career started. Wow. And, and I said it was so great with Ellen for a while. And uh, even when she hosted award shows and stuff. And then that show, from that show, we got a deal with Disney. And I went on other shows and then uh, ended up on that's sort of my path. I think the only thing I left out was with through Rob, whenever he was in the movie, he would bring me on to like punch up his parts. And I ended up becoming a, uh, they hired me on the Beverly Hillbillies movie. So that was my, uh, like a big break too. <laughs> and then, you know, made your way, well, you were on Andy Barker PI, right? Which is a sort of a, right. a cult classic. And then to Will and Grace. Yeah, it was um, Will and Grace before that. but And I think I've been on a few was Will, things Will, that I really liked. Andy Barker, there's one called Sons and Daughters. I mean, there, I've been on a bunch of shows that I've really loved that didn't go anywhere. and uh, But I've also I've been lucky to have some long runs, which is cool in this business. Yeah, how long were you at Will and Grace? Man, I think I was like... <clears throat> Six or seven years, and for, well, for the first time, six or seven years, I was there almost every year, and I ran it the last year I was there, and then I wasn't there for the last season of it, and then I came back uh, when it uh, when it, it came back for its last three years, and I did two of those years, but then I'd sold the pilot, so I ended up d doing my own show for the last year that Will and Grace was on. Um. And then Hot in Cleveland, Mike and Molly. Yeah, I, a short, really short stint on uh, Modern Family, uh, like the first year. And then they, they didn't bring me back, and I was kind of disappointed. But then it ended up being the best thing. Like, I ended up on Hot in Cleveland, and I had a, my quality of life was really good. And I met really good people there. Yeah. And so when you started, I mean, you were really, did you think of yourself as like a joke person because you had, you were coming out of stand-up and, and writing jokes for comedians? Had you had a lot of experience with breaking stories and structuring episodes and, and that kind of thing? Was that something that took you a while to learn? Um, yes, and I mean, I wrote a lot of sketches. You know, I was in uh, improv groups and sketch comedy groups, and oddly enough, I was uh, the token Caucasian in... Um, the Asian American Theater Company's uh, sketch comedy group in San Francisco. So um, I wrote things for them and uh, other groups. And, and uh, so I, I had uh, experience with that and also experience like doing the um, radio spots. That was, uh, this is smaller stuff, but it's learning how to tell like something in one minute, one or two minutes, like uh, being concise. And, and, but I, I had a lot of, I, I was, it was hard for me to motivate myself to, um, to sit down and actually write something. And it, it's almost like I needed the deadline of having my first job when I got to write my, write my first script. It was the second year of Ellen. And I just, it was one of those things where I just was putting it off and putting it off. And I think I wrote it in a weekend, you know, and, uh, you know, one of those things where it's like a 60 page script at first and then cut it down. But it, I, I sort of learned while I was doing it, but I, but I think I've always um, tried to write, and I think it's what it, uh, I was uh, drawn to Lucas for that. I try to write from, uh, I like to be funny, but I like to write from character and to think of character first. And so I think that's, uh, that's what I brought to it. And prior to working with Lucas, had you served in this role, this supervisory role on pilots before? Um, just once before, it, uh, the, when I had an NBC deal with uh, uh, Suzanne Weber, who's a very good writer, and uh, it, it, you know, I haven't had great luck with it, so I don't know why people wouldn't do. But uh, <laughs> but I, I do say that I uh, I have become friends with the people I've done it with, and that uh, my goal in supervising is to not have it be my voice, but to try to figure out what the voice is of the person that I'm. So I, I probably, it's supervising is the term, but collaborating is what I would prefer to think of it as. Um, and supervising just in the, the, the sense that I have more experience and could say, oh, this is usually what we do here. Or this is, you know, this is a way of getting out of a scene like this, or this is how to, how to do right. that. 
Okay, so Lucas like I from you. I would, I would be at the computer. That's supervising that. I would be at the computer <laughs> while Lucas would be laying down on the couch, just like a. <laughs> I would just be like, you know, writing things down. <laughs> so okay, so Lucas, from your point of view, how does this? Uh, how does Alex enter the picture? Um. <clears throat> Well, he, I mean, he entered the picture in the, a very traditional way where it's like once we'd sold the show to CBS, which, I mean, again, they te- technically had already bought it. So, like, they bought – they were going to – they were going to uh, – we brought them two ideas. I, I, I literally sat in a room with CBS Studios and pitched them two shows in one setting. And I'll never forget this. This, I don't know, this is – this, this tells you everything you need to know about Hollywood, right? It's a good thing. This was a great day, but it doesn't make any sense. I finished pitching the other show, and the note we got immediately was, this is the kind of hard premise that we keep telling our writers to pitch. We love this. We're going to buy the other show. So, <laughs> so that's how that started. Then when we pitched it to the network, um, which was very scary, by the way, because this was the first time I'd ever pitched a show, and the president of the network is sitting in the pitch, and I, that, that, that doesn't happen. They always have, uh, you know, people, lower people doing that. This was scary. And I think it's because they were like, who is this crazy guy we gave money to? Let's see if this is going to... Uh, and I was literally having a panic attack the entire pitch. And I don't know if they saw, but I was like, puncturing my inner thigh with my pen because I was like, I am very receptive of people's faces. And so I was like, and they are trained to not give. So I was like, I have no idea if this is working or not. So with that said, they buy it. But we, we all agreed, like we need, you know, Lucas has never wrote, written or managed or show run before. And I certainly was not thinking I could. I was like, I need a Larry David because I don't fucking know what to, what this is and how to handle this shit. And so we just, we, we, they did the thing where they reached out to a bunch of agencies. People sent in a bunch of scripts and we read the scripts. We narrowed it down to a few people. And when Alex's name came across and I read his script and I saw his name, I obviously did a deep dive of everybody's IMDb. The two things that popped for me were Ellen's show and Will and Grace, which for a gay person, those two shows are super <laughs> important. And so I was like, him, 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 him. Um, and it also. And so when he oh, gave me the rose that day, yes. with the other two writers, and I got the rose. It was such a, a meaningful time. When all those other writers had to sashay away, uh, Rue gave it to him. Um, yeah, when, when, and we also, we met, like we reread their work and we called them in and we sat and the entire time I was listening to, um, to Alex talk, one of the things he, I was literally hearing was I was like, oh, this is perfect. You're Al. I'm Lenny. Mm -hmm. There it is. (laughs) That's that our relationship was the, could be the basis for the show. Of just like, how can I push his buttons? How can I be, you know, the, the whole idea he mentioned of like, you know, he would sit behind the computer and I'd be the dog laying on the couch, just kind of scruffing up the place and just kind of being like, you know, what's a goofy thing that we can do? And he'd be like, yeah, but this still needs to make sense. And so it was just like, it was, it was, it was just a, such a cool working relationship in that way that, you know, had the show gone forward. I think we would have been able to really play into that because even though the pitch really kind of leaned in more on like, what's the mom and the son's relationship? I think it was really like, what's Al and this guy's really, cause they're the, you know, and uh, also this keep this in mind. This was 2016, 2017. This would have been 2017 when we were writing this or at least when we turned it in. Which means, you know, literally three months before, the country completely changed. We, we, we pitched, I pitched this show 
when Obama was still in office. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, right. of course, a post-racial show about a gay black Jew who moves in with a white family. And then all of a sudden, Trump gets in office and it's like the country just like a f- switch was flipped. And now I was like, do we want a show about this? This could <laughs> scare some people. Um, so it was weird. It was weird to be writing this now in a completely different country. Right. Were they because I was I was when that happened, I was writing a pilot with Reza Aslan about a Muslim family. And we also, mm. you know, it's a show that I've done on the on the podcast. But we we really changed that show a lot. And our reaction was to, to push more to make it a little bit more political, You know, probably the wrong decision. But were you getting any feedback from the network after Trump selected about wanting you to change it in one direction or another? Or is this just all internal, you uh, this, guys? I think this of... was in my head more than it was any, like, externally. We didn't, I don't, for, I don't remember any notes that were like that at all. Um, no. At all. I think the biggest note that was a constant kind of like about the friends was one of the biggest notes that we kept getting of like, the they seem like they're they're so mean to one another. And I was like, well, they're assholes. <laughs> like that's they're, they're, like they're, you know, so it was weird. Um, Alex can speak more of that. This episode is sponsored by Trade Coffee. And, you know, I love talking about Trade Coffee. I should say up front that I am not a coffee nerd. I really enjoy my morning cup of coffee, but I make it in a drip coffee maker, which I know may be heresy to some people. I just want you to know where I'm coming from. So the trade coffee experience starts with a quiz. You tell them how you make your coffee and what you like in a coffee. But the quiz isn't intimidating. You don't need to have any esoteric knowledge of coffee flavor profiles or cupping or whatever. I mean, the results of my quiz said that I like medium roast, classic, and traditional coffees, perfect for a coffee maker. And every bag of beans that I have gotten from trade has nailed it. The latest one I'm loving is from Cuvee Coffee in Austin, Texas. You know how sometimes you're traveling in another town and you find this amazing little local spot, coffee roaster? Trade gives you that experience of discovery without leaving the house. They partner with these independent roasters from cities and towns across the states. And if you become a trade customer, you're helping all of these small business owners. Trade's often the largest source of new growth for them. And maybe you land on a roaster that you love and you want to keep ordering those beans. Or maybe you're like me and you just love the variety. Trade's coffee teams taste test thousands of coffees. And they have 450 different kinds ready to ship every day. They guarantee you'll love your first order or they will replace it for free. I've been getting different coffees from them every couple of weeks for months now. And there has not been a loser in the bunch. So right now... Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash pilots. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. So get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash pilots and let Trade find you a coffee that you will love. That's drinktrade.com slash pilots for $30 off. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, you had a Seinfeldian kind of thing in your head, maybe? Like, you, 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 you mentioned Kramer... And the way those characters interact, they're very mean to each other. Is that sort of where you're I, coming I from? I definitely felt that Lenny, which is not unlike me, was this huge ball of energy around his friends and very irritating 
and very like, uh, why are you this way? Why do you think about everything in the way you think about it like this? And why does every single thing we do irritate you? And so that, like, it just seems like, because that's, I mean, that's just honest. Like, literally, if you uh, were to spend one second with me and my mother, it literally starts like, if every time my mom comes down to LA, this is the entirety of our relationship. Ready? It's the door opens. Oh, mom, I love you. Love, love. How was your flight? No, how was your flight? Just the flight. I don't care how the Uber was. How was the, f and then it, the, the rest of the day we're screaming at each other. So that, it's the, it's that. Like, and I, and that's, that's a really hard character to pitch to America. To just be like, you know, we didn't, we softened those edges. If I had my druthers, I would want to have played the biggest fucking asshole who screams at his mom. So it's like, that I think was kind of, well, that's where Alex were. comes Yeah, in. Alex is there to be like, <laughs> literally like Al being like, hey, Lenny, this is, we need this to, we need to calm you down, buddy. America's a little weirded out by you. So. So, so Alex, from your point of view, so w when your agent, I assume an agent got in touch to tell you about this opportunity, and then did you, how did, or tell me, I, I, why am I guessing? How did it happen? How did you become aware well, of this, and what was the process? I, I had a, a script deal with CBS, and so I was to, to pitch something and everything, and they asked if I would uh, put off for a year and, and do that and supervise this project, which seemed like a... A great thing to do because I was on staff of a show at that time anyway. It's, sometimes it's harder to, uh, like when you're working a lot, to uh, to develop a show as well. Um, and I was just really, you know, as a as a cisgender heterosexual white male, <laughs> I use like to broaden who I am and to to be, you know. So I was really interested in it and to work with uh, somebody like. Uh, like Lucas and to, you know, when he was, you know, actually when he told me his Twitter feed was gay black Jew, I thought, you know what, this might be, this might be a good place for me to be just to kind of <laughs> like to, uh, to, to, you know, uh, to see what's up. Uh, and so I met and I always, you know, I, I really, I don't like pitching so much, but I like meeting writers and discussing uh, concepts because that's a, it's it's like you're playing a game at that point. You're just trying to make things work, and it's like I think we we, um, I think we hit it intellectually at first. Like we were able to kind of like, like, I think I understood what the show he was trying to do was, and that uh, the producer. Are we? Did you not want to say his name, the producer, or is it uh, Lucas? Are you okay? It's, you it was uh, Dan Jinx, sure. right? Yeah, it's it Dan Jinx. He's pretty like he's. Uh, Who just to chime in real quick, uh, yet another name that's super important for a gay person my age. He had produced American Beauty, so it's like the opportunity to work. <laughs> like the people that I was working with on this, I was just like, were pretty important people in my <laughs> life. The, what they had worked on before, and so just it was also just to navigate between the show Lucas wanted to do and the show that CBS would want to do and sort of trying to, you know, navigate that um, art versus commerce type of uh, dilemma. And and I, I hope I wasn't the guy who was just saying, you can't do that, you can't do that. Because I think I wanted to say, no, not at all. let's do that, let's try to do this, and, and, and just to see what would um, what happen. And also just to, um, for, for sort of my, what I found really interesting was you know, and it's a thing about sort of having diversity in in the workplace is that if you're a bunch of white people and you're writing something about people of color, writing people of different sexualities, writing whatever, you're just sort of you could you could write it, you could you could it's you could get to another character, you could empathize, but to know the reality of it uh, is different. To have people who who actually experience these things, and also for me as a writer to say, and uh, Lucas was very, and I would come up with an idea, try not to edit myself, but I would say, is this offensive? Like, is this joke offensive? <laughs> is, this, is this something that is okay to say? Like, because there's a lot of um, racial stuff in, in the show of like the, especially the younger uh, son who wants to be black. Yeah, Tristan, which right. is so great. That stuff is so funny. So uh, Totally, by the way, so ripped off from, I ripped that off from Houseguest with Sinbad. 
the little white kids trying to be. <laughs> this, this, by the way, this whole show is compiled like a Frankenstein monster of Alf, <laughs> Beethoven, and House Guest. Like that's what this, that's what this all was. But it always, I mean, it's all like the thing is, you take these things from places, but you create your own thing from it because it's. I think the thing that this had was your character and who you are, and to try to make it you, but not you. Uh, but some of the things we took from you is just like when you talk about the philosophy thing that here's a person with a lot of different interests who studies all these different things and who, but who can't, this isn't you, but who's, who can't really commit to any one of them. Um, and, you know, the nanny uh, aspect of which like to try to be like, hey, you know, it turns out that all these things that he studied, including improv and philosophy and health, whatever, just ended up accidentally being the perfect you know, uh, perfect ingredients for this job, being the nanny. Uh, for me, the friends were really important because I, I never want to do something where Lucas is the one uh, person of color in a group of white people. I thought it was really important to have main characters who who were contemporaries. And so we didn't just uh, make it just a family show, uh, you, that you could have those tensions between him and Al and him and his mom, but also I thought just having a stronger friend group, which I would have wanted to focus on in future episodes, would have created like different stories that could have kept it younger and edgier in some ways as well, so. Yeah, it seemed so key to the pilot to have that other world, to have that world of the bar with Crystal and Jason, to, 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 to see who he is there and not just him as this sort of bull in a china shop in the on the home front i th i think one of the yeah, oh, I, yeah. I, I was just gonna say that the what i really loved about that was lenny doesn't change who he is between the family where when he's in the house and when he's in the bar what changes is who deals with him and how and that to me was always the funniest thing is that this character was not some like code switcher like he would he would be just as inappropriately flamboyant and when he could get away with it inappropriately like aggressive inappropriately anything to push the buttons of the people he's working with and his friend group deals with him completely differently than his new family does but what i was always interested in there are so many things that i knew we couldn't openly talk about on the show because what i wanted this character to be was ultimately fucking crazy like literally like lenny's in, like, not well this is a mentally unwell person and we're watching this sociopath basically learn how can i manipulate a situation by what do i have to be like what mercurial way can i slither in and out of my expectations which also meant him kind of being a dick to his friends so there i was always coming from a place of like this is not a necessarily we're not watching an american sweetheart we're watching a very troubled person but we're also watching him figure himself out because you know we use that age old uh trope of like he'd had his heart broken and so there's this you know, albatross of vengeance on his mind of like, how could this person, because I myself was just coming out of a relationship that ended really kind of nasty. And so I was bitter and angry. And I was like, ah, oh, all my friends are choosing him and fuck them. And so I was, there was a, you know, there was that kind of <laughs> anger uh, that, you know, is where I have, if this got, you know, on, show, on air and ran a couple seasons, I, I wanted to play with some, the idea that, you know, some of the questions being like, um, you know, Madeline being, that was her name, right? Madeline? The, the yeah. kid? Oh, I'm, I'm using the name yeah. Madeline in another show as for a different character. And I'm like, now I'm confusing. <laughs> but I, yeah. I wanted there to be this kind of idea of like Madeline being like, you know, I actually think this that Lenny is not okay. Like, I'm actually scared to be in this house with this person. I hear him downstairs <laughs> talking to himself He's conducting interviews with himself, all of which I do, by the way. So it's like, anyway, there was there was a level of darkness that I wanted to explore that I also knew it's it's a CBS show. It's not you didn't get this on HBO. This isn't you know. So you have to figure out how does everything become subtle and how do you 
how do you make that work? And one of the things that was always impressive to me working with Alex is paying attention to how you deal with the network because that relationship is super important. And I've never done that before. So that I learned a lot of like, well, I know what our conversations are and where our head's at. But I also was hearing how he was translating that to the suits. And when the suit would give a note that we agreed with, great, that we didn't agree with, well, how do you deal with that? It was a, it was basically a graduate level course for a, 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 a job that I've never had before. So that will that has, you know, let's put it this way, a lot of the other things I've worked on, I don't know how well a student I've been, but had a great teacher, had a really good teacher in that regard. And so <laughs> that, that dynamic is also what is reflected in the show of like Al is trying to teach this person and he has one of the most infuriating fucking students in the world. So like all of that was kind of, I don't even remember what the fucking question was. Sorry. What was the, what? Okay. Alex was great. Great working with him. <laughs> and, you know, I saw you less as a uh, sociopath, the character, and more as somebody, um, though it would have been interesting to go down that path, and, like, it would have been interesting to have this show on an HBO or streaming service where you could deal with somebody who actually needed to be on medication mm -hmm. and things like that, you know. Uh, and But just the the sort of the sense of entitlement that this character had and the delusions of grandeur and the feeling of break that, that just, uh, that, and one of my favorite lines, I don't even know which one, it may, you've came up with them, I came up together, was just like, you can't actually achieve grandeur without having delusions of grandeur first. You have to kind of believe you can achieve <laughs> exactly. grandeur. Well, see, so you're never going to, that may have been, I think that was you. I'm pretty sure um, that was a both of us kind of, yeah, that must have come up in conversation. So yeah, I think that, and that's what I was talking about, like writing with comedians rather than for comedians, that things come from, especially when you're working with improvisers, people who are funny, you just, you riff back and forth and then things happen and then it's just like in a writer's room, you don't know who really came up with a, a joke. It's like there were three assists before the ball got to the, right. the last person who said something. Um, but it was just, um, so that there were levels of, uh, to the character, and also I, I could relate to Alan just trying to um, meaning well, being socially awkward, and somehow being with it. You know, I think I, I I wish we could have dealt more with the mom character, dealt more. So in a pilot, you can't just get everyone there, like to, to to make sort of some of these characters richer. I think we we, but but just that somehow Al ends up with this woman who's kind of like. Uh, so different than who he would be with. She's this like hippie woman from from Berkeley. I don't know if we we're going to have it that her that your dad was a, a Black Panther or not. I can't remember if we were going to do that, Lucas or not. Or uh, I don't remember, um, but that uh, does sound familiar. That he, I'm sure we uh, came up so with something where it was like he's a Black Panther. He blew up a building or something. He was super militant, something crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. So just that, that this was just like a whole different, like she went, like did a, a 180 to uh, to a different kind of guy. That, by the way, but was my favorite line in the whole right. thing, which I know I would have said to my mom if in reality, if she went to a white guy, is I literally would have <laughs> said to her, the line mom is, once you go black, you never go back. You went back. If that had made it into a trailer, that's you need see not you need know nothing else of that show. That's the show. So that is a great line. That and he just said blindside. Yes, is a, is let the record show. Of mine. As, a, as a great top, he said blindside as a topper to that to that run. Yeah. So, Alex, philosophically, when you're in this role as collaborator or supervisor, or whatever, do you? Feel your job. I mean, you said, you, you know, you want it not to be your show. You want it to be Lucas's show, right? You want right. you want Lucas to be able to realize his vision. On the other hand, you part of your job as the experienced person is to to try and give it the best shot of making it to the finish line. Those two goals are often incompatible, um, and which for you do you see as your primary role in doing this? 
You know, um, I, I think if I did it again, I would maybe concentrate more on the, the latter one, but I think my, I was concentrating more on the former thing and letting, in some ways, Dan Jinks and the other producing people like help guide us to what is like, uh, they were, they were involved in it and saw things and gave us notes as well. So, um, we adjusted to whatever notes there were and everything, but at least first crack, I think, I think my first goal is always the, um, was the, um, what does Lucas want to say? And who are these characters and how do we stay true to them, who they are? Um, but I, I probably was trying and selling things. Some of the stuff Lucas was saying, like, oh, I'm not really sure we could say this or just let's, let's, uh, how do we address this network note in the way that's, um, that doesn't sell out the, the premise of the show or, or, you know, and, and where do we pick our battles as well? You know, do we, we, we can't fight everything. So what are the ones we want to do? I, and I've actually continued to learn that from the last show, just knowing how to, Take note, like I, I started doing something this last show of just, I would just write down the network. I have my assistant write down all the network notes. Then I would stay later at the end of the day and I would send a, uh, a point by point thing to the um, studio network and say, here are the notes you gave. Here's how we tried to address them. We weren't able to address this one, so we try to do it like that. I try to keep the uh, communications open a little bit more. It meant my staying like an hour later than everybody, but it was. I think it ended up being good for communication and, and for network being heard. I think so this is on broke. That was on broke, which that didn't last either. So none of my things work, but uh, at least I'm trying. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning. I'm trying to. Uh, no. Uh, well, you can't say that though, because you know that that was a show you created that that made it to air. So that is you've won all of these inc inc incredible contests, incredibly difficult contests to get to that point. And every show, you know, no show lasts forever. But um, what's your emotional? You, this is just going that I really love the Candace Bergen. Show. I met you at your office, I think, in the um, by the farmers market and. Uh, and I really liked that show a lot, and so that was one that didn't go. But I thought it was just real, like such a great character. And I said, like, when I saw this, like, how does this not go? This is just such a, uh, a good show. So. Well, thank you, thank you. That was Pearl. She's also done on this podcast, um, or at least a version of it. Um, uh, what's your? Okay, so Alex, you seem you know. Here's my impression: you're one of the most you know, legendarily funny, great joke writers in television. People know you for that. You you also seem extremely level-headed and calm. What's your emotional response to notes? Um, and ha like, were you, when you're working with this, it may be different when it's completely yours or when you're collaborating like this, how calm do you stay when you get notes? Um, that's a that's an interesting question because I think there's what's happening inside and what's happening outside. Uh, <laughs> I, I get very I could get very frustrated by notes and especially when and and convent about them, but it doesn't do any good to um, have that reaction to the network of the studio themselves. And I try to. And I, I've got, you know, even I keep on learning, which is good, but from uh, from Jenny Ehrman, of just like trying not to look at the studio or the network as the enemy uh, and to think that they're trying to get something done too and trying to really hear them. And, and, and um, which doesn't mean I don't fight for things that I believe in or, but I at least try to hear them first. Uh, but it is difficult and it's, uh, Probably my wife has borne the brunt of my <laughs> bitching about things when I get home and just like, because I really, if I'm in charge too, I try not to vent in front of the other writers either. I don't want to, I'll let them vent, I'll let them say whatever they want to say, but I try not to be that person. I just make these choices. These are just choices that I make that maybe aren't necessarily healthy because there's just weird stuff going on inside because I'm feeling, I could feel very angry, I could feel really upset, but I said, okay, I'm going to just not bring this here so so were you getting things where i mean lucas were, were you reacting to notes in a way where 
you know, you were getting pissed and Alex could calm you down? Or were you both just kind of like, okay, everyone's trying to help and these aren't terrible notes? And- I know. I don't remember ever getting pissed. I, I was never, nothing ever <laughs> made me angry. Um, it, but there were, there were some notes that I, I think Alex was one of the first people who taught me this, that underneath every note, no matter how bananas or whether you disagree with the note uh, or not, Underneath every note, there's a reason they're bumping up against it. There's a reason they're giving the note. So understanding that is important because maybe you can still get what you want, but you still have to get it in a way that addresses what they are bumping up against. And I would imagine studio executives and network executives are it's split in this, um, this kind of like their own uh, dissociative personality of half the time they're the audience they're trying to predict what the audience is going to react to and they're also trying to predict as a as a purveyor of goods and what that you don't want to piss <laughs> off your uh, you know your buyers or your you don't want to piss off the people that are consuming your product so they're torn between that and so they're always trying to figure out is this product what we want to put on the air for our viewers and is it going to do it in a way that gets them to come back for more. So in that regard, every note does come from an honest, nice place. They just want to make a great show. However, there's a reason why there's comedians <laughs> pitching the idea, the funny, and it's being noted by people who aren't funny. And so that was the only <laughs> kind of disconnect in my brain of like, if you're going to give me a note on something, and boy, I would never say this to really really but i just in my head i'm like shouldn't your note be funnier than what i've done <laughs> if the note's not funnier than what i've done then why is that the note <laughs> if that now if that was the case you know i was just gonna say if 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 every single time i'm sure there are executives who boy when they give notes they're like shouldn't this be funnier like if this was switched and you go god damn that is funnier so you gleefully take those notes. Yeah, those are rare. It's it's rarely what they're actually giving notes on. You know, it's it's much more often the emotional you know arc of the story or the logic of the story. You know, the the, the comedy is rarely the topic of the notes. Logic, I, I will. Oh, yep, so sorry. Yep. Nope. I, I was just saying the things that were frustrating are the notes where they, it, um, where they want to over. In my mind, over-explain things or uh, let people not let people cover. And because when you're adding these notes, and you have to cut something, the only thing left to cut is comedy. And how do you cut the the things that are entertaining to get uh, information out? You know, uh, because the information that you're trying to convey often there's hardly a way to do it that's funny. It's just like you know, uh, well, don't you know that I have this flower shop? back here and, and uh, I have to, I have to work here and, uh, and it's pretty successful so I don't have time to uh, you know to look after the kids the way I would think I'd have to work you know what, whatever it was that um, that would yeah. just be like oh, man I don't I don't want to be adding this stuff I don't want to be <laughs> yeah it's almost like our our highest value is the laugh and their highest value is clarity now they're, you know, and it's like you need clarity to get the laugh. You know, people can't be lost. They have to know where they are. But the, but there's but they don't need the level of clarity that I feel like is is often asked for. Nobody ever says, you know what I really love about that show? It made sense. It, it was <laughs> sure. It was so clear. So clear. Um, so, you know, I see this show as so much, you know, it's a it's really it's a character study. I mean, it really is like, you know, it's a true it, it's a starring it's a star vehicle um, for for a very uh, unlikely for, star. For look, My goodness, star, yes. Um, but so um, you know, so what what were your thoughts? Uh, you know, he, and and Lucas might have been hard. You're acting. You're in every scene, and so it's maybe like during the read, it's it's hard to you know be present. Um, but this is the first time for you know for both of you hearing it. I, I assume you know. I don't know if you ever did any kind of informal read, but I'm a it's almost always the case on this show that's the first time writers get to hear their pilot read out loud. Um, and uh, what were your thoughts? Um, 
I wish that it had at least gotten a chance to be filmed. Uh, it it <laughs> it sounded pretty goddamn close to what we had we, we wrote, <laughs> and I think that the only the only and this is this is very specific. I would say of me myself, the only thing that I think even a table read does would not convey is that this character you just need to see him you you really need to see <laughs> lenny standing in action mm-hmm. in a space filling a space because uh you know as people listening to this can hear you know my, I, the character does sound like me this nasally kind of mercurial all over the place kind of character but when you when you just hear that that can get annoying but when you embody that into a physical being that's obs- like look at kramer when that dude entered a goddamn room, stop the presses. But Kramer enters room <laughs> does not motivate you as a listener at a table read. So that's the only thing that for me was missing is, God, I just wanted to see these characters in action. Um, but hearing it, I was like, a lot of these jokes landed. And I was like, what are these? What's wrong with these people? They, just give us, they should have just given us the fucking pilot. It would have been awesome. And if they, if they didn't... Yeah green light it to lower like they didn't green light the series that'd have been like yeah that makes sense fine but like just like <laughs> seeing the the pilot would have really been i think super exciting because to me that's like uh, i'll just put it this way i've been binge watching a lot of taxi and i can't imagine that the writers writing louis louis de palma there's no way to showcase how important a star Danny DeVito is going to be on page. It's just a mean man saying really mean, funny things. But when you see it come out of that person, Emmy, now I'm not saying I don't want an Emmy, but I am saying it would have looked, <laughs> it would have looked the part of what was, you know, right. Yeah. That's funny. I thought you were going to say Reverend Jim just because it's another, you know, you talk about Kramer and, you know, I think about Reverend Jim. It's, you know, Lenny's in that kind yes. of world. The, the physicality, the dynamic, the, the, the sort of erratic nature. I only I only of, didn't say him because he's not in the pilot. That's the only reason I didn't mention Jim. Oh, I guess you're I guess that's true. Yes, I forget that he's not in the pilot. Um, but, it, you know, and, and it's 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 a good reminder that people should um you know become max fund members and then they can watch the video of the table read at least to see lucas lucas's face because it adds so much you know Mm -hmm. to see lucas's presence reading that reading that script but anyway alex what 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 do you think um uh, a lot of same things it was both nice hearing but you know um at the very last minute the person who was playing al wasn't (laughs) able to show up so it was filled in by somebody else so Part of me at the beginning was saying, like, oh, I, I wish I had five minutes to have given him some notes before he had started. <laughs> he was just a very good actor, but I don't think he – it was amazing that he did it without yeah. having the, um, knowing it. But just I think that – I would have – maybe because, like, <laughs> like we could say I'm kind of the Al character. I almost thought, <laughs> like, I probably should have just done it. I probably should have just, just read it because I would have known a little bit more what the um, – even though I'm not an actor, I would have known what the attitude was. Right. The, um, um, you know, that there's a a frustration with him, but also a kindness and wanting to be liked as well and wanting to uh, impart something to somebody. Uh, like he caught between a few different things. But all in all, it was just, it, it made me a little sad because uh, I would have liked to have seen a film. I would have liked to have seen even though you'll see uh, Lucas' face reading Lenny, just his physicality of walking, like mm. the idea of like catching himself every time he passes a mirror that he can't go past a mirror without looking at it. I think there are a lot <laughs> of like physical things and running things that could have been really funny. Uh, I, I just thought of one joke, uh, Lucas, I just want to say this. I don't know if this was in the script or something. You're talking about like prejudices and things of just like people look at you. I think just because you're black, you're good at basketball. And then he said, I do happen to be very good at basketball. Oh, yes. Um, no, that is based on a true story. I don't know if I'm still good because I've gotten a lot older. 
But there was a, I was at a, um, <laughs> I was at like a, you know, family picnic of someone else's family. And it was, you know, well, way before Get Out. But everyone there was white. I was the only person of color there. And they had a back, a basketball court in their backyard. And they, you know, everyone was like, well, let's play. And I was like, okay. And everyone was assuming this guy's literally just raining threes from everywhere. And I felt so embarrassed (laughs) because of how good I was. (laughs) I was just like, like the only thing it almost, it didn't get to the level of like airplane where like the the Africans in the background are like dunking already (laughs) when they first learned the game. But like, it almost was that way. And it's like that kind of stuff. That would have been the kind of stuff that we would, I, I think both of us would have wanted to play with of where it it seems like it's too hot to handle, but it's really an innocent kind of thing, especially between, you know, him and Tristan would have probably been, my goodness, the racial education that would have happened between the two of them would have been fantastic of just like you know, making those assumptions, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I bet you I bet you really love rap music. I don't I, how dare you think I I love rap music just because I'm black. Now granted, here's my top 5 list, you know, Cool Modi's not on the like and of course he knows every he has an encyclopedic knowledge because that's just the kind of guy he is. Um this shit like that would have just been a lot of fun to kind of play with. Um Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think, you know, so many of the biggest laughs are because you're you're toying with something that feels a little bit dangerous. Absolutely. Because <laughs> we have to be a little bit on you know, uncomfortable or off kilter to so to you know, for the, it to be funny. Um well it was you know, it, it was really fun. Um such a fun pilot and great you know, getting to know you, Lucas and Alex. Just very happy to have finally gotten you uh, on on this program. It's about time, and thank you for for letting us do it and for talking with me. Of course, our pleasure. All right, thank you. All right, I hope you enjoyed my talk with those two guys, uh, the gay black Jew and the seasoned comedy veteran. That was a lot of fun. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling and edited by Jordan Katz. If you like us, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. Follow us on social media. Come on. Do one of those things. Pick one and do it. Until next time, I am Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.